Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. talking and enjoying one another. It's so good. Uh, we, it is exciting to have Good Friday and Easter Sunday coming up. And um, please go ahead and sign up if you know you're going to be there. Uh, we just, we always have more people. And so if you want to get your seat, don't wait until the night before. Sign up now on the website. Actually, everything. Um, the way we do it is when there's an event we're asking you to sign up for, you can just go to newcityhh.com. You click on blog, and you'll see eventually the event and the sign-up sheet. And that's just how we kind of do everything. So you'll need to do that even for the mental health seminar because we're going to get you the Zoom uh, link on Friday morning. So if you want to be part of that, the the way to do that is to go on the blog, find the mental health seminar, and sign up. And then we'll get you that link so you can be part of it. I think it's going to be good. I've seen the presentation. It's going to be really helpful to give you some tools just to take care of your own mental health. Anybody been a little stressed over the past year? Everybody should raise their hand. Okay. Well, we are in the seventh, uh, the seventh, um, the seventh sermon on living greatly. The Sermon on the Mount will remind you that last fall we did the Beatitudes: "Blessed are the poor in spirit." And then on our fourth anniversary, we did what it means to be salt and light. And then this January, we started with. Uh, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And as we wind it down, it's interesting because as we wind the Sermon on the Mount down, um, Jesus doesn't really give us any sales pitch. He really doesn't say, it's okay if you don't want to do this. He actually draws a line in the sand. He draws a line in the sand and confidently calls to us to follow him in living out the Sermon on the Mount. And as he draws that line in the sand, it's going to bring a couple questions to us is, um, are we going to follow him in living this out and putting it into practice? Now, not perfection. No one does a Sermon on the Mount perfectly by any means, and not for salvation. We're, sa- we're saved by the grace of Jesus through the cross, but are we going to put it into practice? And what that really gets to is how you answer that question really reveals if you trust Jesus or not. It reveals where we trust Jesus because Jesus is going to call us to do things in the Sermon on the Mount that mean we have to rearrange our life. And for most of us, we think the way that we're living our life is the best way to live our life. But Jesus is going to call us to change some things about our life throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And the question, when that hits you, the question is, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust Jesus to follow and obey him? And Jesus draws that line in the sand this morning as we, as we go through the big part of chapter 7 and asks us, do you trust me? Let's read Matthew seven thirteen through 27. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life? And if you find it, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. 
A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, and the rivers rose, and the winds blew, and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, and pounded that house, and it collapsed. And it collapsed with a great crash. The word of God. Preaching of your word this morning. Come with power and conviction and encouragement. Amen. A few years ago, I got an invitation from a friend of mine. He had a boat, and he lived in Hallandale, and he invited me and Virginia and our youngest, who was just two at the time, to go with him and his wife on a boat, and we were going to go to his house in Hallandale, get on the boat, and travel along the intercoastal and just enjoy the beautiful South Florida weather. And so we got on the boat, and we headed south on the intercoastal. We went through Hallandale under the Hallandale Bridge, and then we passed Aventura on our right side, and eventually Sunny Isles and Olita State Park. And we got all, over, all the way down to the, the Hallover Marina, the Hallover Beach, and the, and the Hallover Inlet. And our goal was to go out from the intercoastal, through the Hallover Inlet, into the ocean, and just cruise around in the ocean. But as we got to the Hallover Inlet, I took one look at the inlet, and I thought, I'm, I'm taking a hard pass on this one. Um, you see, there was terrible, chaotic waves out in the ocean. It was pretty windy that day, and the swells were building up. And I looked at that, and I thought, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> because what was happening was the waves were funneling into the inlet, and they were becoming even more chaotic and more big and more dangerous. And I pictured the boat doing one of these over and over and over again as we tried to get through the Hallover Inlet out to the ocean. And I looked at my wife and I looked at my two-year-old and I thought, this is not worth it. This is actually quite dangerous. And I looked around, and the thing was, is there was a lot of other options of things we could do besides going through that chaotic inlet. Uh, I mean, right there at Hallover is the Hallover Sandbar. It's this place in the intercoastal where it's really shallow. You can actually park your boat, you can get out, and you can walk around in the intercoastal because the sandbar's there. And they have this really cool food barge. I think it's called, like, D's Sandbar. And they have a number on the barge, and you call them, you order your food, they cook it on the barge, and then they get a little delivery man in a kayak who comes over to your boat and gives you your food. And I thought, that's a better option, for real. That's a better option. Uh, another option would be we could just go south to Miami and, like, go under all the causeways and, and catch a view of, uh, of the Miami skyline. Or we could just turn around and go home. Those all felt like better options. 
But really, what really sealed the deal for me was when I looked over at my friend as he was watching, uh, as he was looking at the, the, the inlet. And I realized that he did not have the confidence even to drive that boat through that chaotic inlet. Um, you know, he wasn't a brand new boat driver or boat operator, but he also wasn't very experienced. And just kind of the way his mouth was sitting, it, it didn't portray confidence. It portrayed, uh, I'm going to take a hard pass too. <laughs> and so we did. We took a hard pass and we looked out at that choppy water and we said, no way. And we decided to go south. We went south and we saw the Miami skyline and then eventually we had to turn around because there's only so long a two-year-old could last on a boat. And we headed back, not going through that choppy inlet, not getting pounded by the boat, um, taking a hard pass. You know, as, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's a lot like that inlet. It's choppy. If, if we begin to look at what Jesus has told us to live out, the actions that he's told us to put into practice, it looks rough. It looks like if we enter in through that sermon and begin to live it out, we are going to get pounded. And so immediately we begin to think, what are my other options? <laughs> are there any other options than actually trying to put this into practice? I mean, one option we have is that we could just go through the Sermon on the Mount, we could finish it this week and next, and just go, that was great. I learned a lot of head knowledge. And I'll know a lot about the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm choosing the option of knowing but not doing. Another option would be that we could just move into another part of the Bible, even in your personal devotionals, and, and just sort of forget about the Sermon on the Mount and move on to do something else. It's too hard. It's too difficult. It's too dangerous. It's too choppy. I don't want to get pounded, so I'm going to find another path. But here in this passage today, Jesus is saying, I know it's choppy. I know it's difficult. I know this path is challenging, but follow me. Follow me in living out the Sermon on the Mount. Trust me. Do you, do you, do you trust me? You know, as I looked at my friend, I realized by the look in his eyes that I, I did not trust him. Uh, not, not that he wasn't a good guy, but even he didn't trust himself. And yet Jesus looks at us with utter confidence, not breaking a stare, saying, come with me. Come with me. Let me help you live this out. Do you trust me? That's what today is really about. We're, we're looking at this, and Jesus is calling us out, saying, I've taught you all these things. Now do you trust me enough to put them into practice in your life? The first thing he, he says, do you trust me enough to let me lead you to life. In verse 13 and verse 14, it says, enter through the narrow gate. Now, now there's a command here. Enter. Do it. Go. Go through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. Jesus is saying that there are two paths, um, and one he's telling us to enter through. He's telling us to enter through the narrow path that leads to life, rather than taking the other option of going down the broad path that seems like life, but ultimately leads to our own destruction. 
It leads to our own destruction. Now, when we, when we hear what Jesus is saying, and he says a narrow path, we tend to go, oh, well, that's a little narrow-minded. <laughs> the fact that Jesus would say there's only one path and you either take it or you don't doesn't really fit in with our cultural moment where you design your own spirituality and you say yes to whatever you say yes to and you say no to whatever you want to say no to. But Jesus says, no, there's two options. It's either with me through the narrow gate or it's without me on your own path, the broad path. And I think after this year, the temptation for us is to feel even a little apathetic about Jesus' command to us. I mean, in one sense, it's like, man, I mean, people are dying. There are people without money. Uh, Racism continues to rear its ugly head in our country. Aren't there other things that are more important than this? Well, there are many things that are important. And yet, Jesus calls us to take him seriously in what he's saying. And the reason is, the reason that he gives us this warning is because though we may feel some apathy about what he says, he's saying it to us because he's not apathetic about us. He's not apathetic about us. If you give someone this sharp of a warning, it's because you care about them and you want them to make the right decision. And we call spirituality, we tend to think about that in a different way than we think about everything else. But Jesus is telling us, well, there is only a narrow way to get to life. For instance, if you're not feeling well and you go to the hospital, you get in that hospital bed and they hook up your heart rate monitor to you. And the doctor comes in and says, something is terribly wrong with your heart. In one minute, your heart is going to stop. And the only thing that we can do, the only thing that we can do for you is pull out the defibrillator, get those paddles ready, yell clear, and bring you back to life through an electric shock. That's what's going to happen to you. This is the only way we can save you and bring you to life. Your response is it, are there any other options? Is there any other path that I could go down? No, you listen to the doctor because of his authority. And even though the path is narrow, you take it because you have no other options that will lead you to life. Such is what Jesus is saying to us, that there is a narrow path that leads to life in his kingdom. And then there is another path, not the Jesus path, that leads to our destruction. And Jesus warns us that few find the narrow gate, few find the narrow path, but many, many Go down the broad path. Why do few find the narrow path? Well, we think that something else besides what Jesus offers us is the path to life. So there's just a natural way we think. Well, what what is the path to the good life? Well, it's wealth, it's power, it's influence, it's comfort, it's security. That's the path I want to be on because those are the things that in my mind I go, yes, those will lead me to life. And the gate, the narrow gate, the one that Jesus is pointing us down, it doesn't look like life from our culture's perspective. I mean, picture a gate. Picture a gate, and on it are written these words from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The gate says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are those who are humbled before God and others. 
Blessed are those who are so tired of the darkness in their own heart that they hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who don't seek revenge but make peace. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And you read that wording written on the narrow gate and you go, that's not life. I'll go somewhere else. See, that's the reason few find it, is because the life that Jesus offers us doesn't look attractive to most people, but it is the way to life with God. Because for those who are poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. For those who mourn, they will be comforted. For those who are humbled, they will inherit the earth. For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled by God. For those who are merciful and know their need for mercy, they will be given mercy. For those who are pure in heart, they will see God. For those who are peacemakers, they will be called sons of God. And those who are persecuted because of righteousness, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And the blessings from the Beatitudes are the very thing that we need. That's the very way that Jesus defines life. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. But few find that path because they look at that and they say, no, no, no. Wealth, power, influence, prestige, comfort, security, safety. That's where life really is. And so Jesus comes to us and he asks us, do you trust me to lead you to life? Even though the entrance to life looks choppy, even though it looks difficult, do you trust me to follow me to lead you to life? And here's the thing, if we trust him, we won't just believe him ethereally, we'll actually begin to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Not perfectly by any means, but we will begin to put it into practice because we trust him. And we want to obey him. And we want to follow him. Jesus tells us to trust him to lead us to life, but he also tells us to trust him by not trusting appearances. To trust him by not trusting appearances. Verse 15, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. Inwardly are ravaging wolves. The term false prophet means that there is someone who talks about Jesus, who appears to follow Jesus, maybe even some ways is a good example to you of Jesus, but is ultimately not really about Jesus. And they appear a certain way, but what's really inside their heart is not how they appear. And it's very hard to spot. I had a friend I was talking to a couple years ago, and we were talking about a particular Christian figure, and I just said, listen, I hate to say it this way, but they are a false teacher, and here's why. And I spelled it out for them. And her response to me was, no, 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 no. They're not a false teacher. False, false prophets and false teachers, it's really obvious. Like, they're all about themselves all the time. And they're, like, way off. And I said, no, 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 you missed it. You missed it. Because that's the exact opposite of what Jesus says. 
Jesus says they're really hard to spot. It's really hard to spot a false prophet because they look like they're part of the flock of Jesus, and yet they're a ravaging wolf trying to devour the flock of Jesus. So when we talk about false prophets, we're not talking about cult leaders. We're not talking about people who appear really self-centered. We're not talking about people who deny Jesus publicly. We're talking about people who come across as very reasonable, very loving. They seem to have spiritual power. They might even always be positive. They like always have a, a positive perspective on life, but ultimately they are false. Ultimately, they're false. And the reason that they're false is not because they always say things that are obviously wrong. They don't say Jesus isn't God, Jesus didn't die for your sins, although they can. But more often than not, it's a little bit of spin. It's a little bit of spin on the truth, just enough so it's no longer true. Some of you know the movie Dumb and Dumber. Okay, you do. Some of you know the movie Dumb and Dumber, and Jim Carrey plays this character named Lloyd Christmas, and I don't remember whether he's dumb or dumber, but he's dumb. And he falls for this girl, Jim Carrey falls for this girl, and, uh, and he just falls in love with her, and he's like, what are the possibility of you and I getting together? And she looks right back at him and says, it's not good. <laughs> and he's like, not good, like one in a hundred? And she goes, try one in a million. And Jim Carrey gets this big smile, and he goes... So you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> spin, right? Right, he took the words that she had said, but, but he spun it, right? So that it was no longer true, it was false. And then later on in the movie, he finds out that she's actually married. And he looks at her and goes, what was all that one in a million talk, right? He used the words that she said, but he spun them in a way that it was no longer true, but it was false. And such is what happens with false prophets, with false prophets. They, they spin the words of Jesus just enough that it's no longer true, but they use the words of Jesus and they talk about Jesus and they seem to love Jesus, so it appears after, as if they're really about Jesus, but they're not. They're about themselves. And you can't really see that on the inside. The early church had a term for a false prophet. They called them Christ merchants. Christ merchants, and it, it was people who were like salesmen, but used Jesus to get what they really wanted, whether that was power or money or something else. They weren't following Jesus, they were kind of like Christ adjacent. They were, they were like using him to get what they wanted from people, and that's why Jesus says that you have to be on guard, because you will like these people. You will be inspired by these people. You will feel honored to be near false prophets, but ultimately you can tell that they are not real teachers of Jesus Christ by their fruit. That's what Jesus says in verse 16 through 18, that you can see them by their fruit. Now, some of the fruit is their teaching. Does their teaching match up with the Bible? And I think that there's two threads that I would warn you about. There's two strands of false teaching, of false prophets that I think are really devastating the church. And the first one is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says, if I trust Jesus, then life will be less choppy. All my problems will go away, and I will get health and wealth and prosperity. 
Now, Chevelle and I were talking about this earlier this week, and we're just looking at a couple, a couple of scriptures from Romans, and it says, you know, if you follow Jesus, you will have to endure suffering. You know, the, the catchphrase of this movement is your best life now. But what the Bible says is this life's going to be hard. It will be choppy. There, there will be things that, that pound on you. But in the life to come, all things broken will be healed. And so the prosperity gospel, uh, one guy said it, it's like marrying someone for your money, for their money. The prosperity gospel teaches that if you just trust God enough, you'll be rich, you won't have any problems, and that is false. But there's another thread that I, I think might even be more maniacal because I would call it prosperity gospel light. Prosperity gospel light. It, it's, it's a little harder to see, but the, the, the people in this movement talk a lot about Jesus, they talk less about wealth, but they sort of portray this image that if you follow them, your life will go the way you want it to. You'll be happy. You'll have amazing friends. You'll get to dress like I do. And these people have a lot of followers. They, they tend to do sermons that sort of always draw people in and are always relevant and always skip the challenging things in the Bible. Always skip the challenging things in the Bible. And, and I'll, I'll just say this, listen, a lot of people on social media, a lot of teachers on social media, I would categorize as prosperity gospel light. In other words, you're not getting the true teaching from scripture from them. You're getting like hot tips on how to live. It almost feels like they're your life coach who can help you. And that's great if you have a life coach, but that's different than following Jesus. It's different than following Jesus. And so it doesn't work if someone teaches you about wealth and the good life, but doesn't push you to have the, the kingdom righteousness deep in your heart that Jesus wants for his disciples. It doesn't matter if you cheer for preaching. What matters deeper is you love God's word. It doesn't matter if you're just inspired by Jesus. Jesus doesn't want you to just be inspired by him. He wants you to trust and obey him. Trust and obey him. And listen, I've had to come to my own terms with my position related to false prophets and false teachings. Because there was a time in this church where I thought, I'm just going to really preach the gospel. And if I preach the gospel, then I don't have to worry about people believing things that are false. But then I started talking to people, and I realized they loved the gospel, but they couldn't discern that what they were listening to on YouTube or something like that was actually false. And so a couple of years ago, it just, I, I searched the scripture, and I realized that over and over and over, Jesus says, there will be false prophets, and they will deceive many. And then when Paul mentors Titus and Timothy, these young pastors, he says, encourage people towards the truth and refute what's not true. And I thought, I'm dropping the ball. I can't just say what's right. I have to also point out what's wrong. And that's when we started doing that series in the American Gospel, and we started talking a little bit about true teaching and false teaching, because one of the main jobs of a pastor, like one of the top five jobs of a pastor, is to help you see what's true teaching and what's false teaching. 
That's for emphasis. <laughs> because here's the thing. False prophets produce false disciples. Christ merchants produce disciples who are Christ adjacent but not actually following Jesus. Verse 21 and 20 through 23, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now note, first of all, Lord, Lord, that's, that's orthodox. That's like good theology, right? Lord, Lord, Jesus is Lord, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Next verse. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Now, Jesus is saying that there are disciples who say the right thing. They talk the talk. They call Jesus Lord, Lord. But not only that, they express spiritual power. They seem to command uh, demons. They seem to be able to do miracles. And yet they don't know Jesus. How how do we reckon, reckon that? I mean, if someone does a miracle in Jesus' name, Jesus is saying that that doesn't necessarily mean that that they're my disciple. That's a good warning for us because there is a lot of people who are doing signs and wonders or saying that they do signs and wonders. And signs and wonders by themselves are not the true test of whether someone's a true teacher. The, the, The true test is whether someone is following Jesus from the heart, whether they rely on him and they they trust him for salvation and therefore they're willing to lay down their life and follow him. And the reason I think Jesus calls uh, calls these people lawbreakers is because, not because they're not perfect, not because they're not sinners, but because they've never taken the Sermon on the Mount, they've never taken his teaching to heart. They say the right thing or they express spiritual power, and yet they they intimately don't know Jesus. Jesus says, I never knew you. You never took my words into your heart and trusted me and tried to live them out. Jesus is telling us that the way that we can show our trust is by acting on his words. Verse 24 Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, now again, Jesus is talking about practicing the Sermon on the Mount, not perfecting it. We know that we are saved by what Jesus has done for us, not by our obedience, but by his death on the cross for us, his resurrection unto new life on our behalf. By trusting in him, all our sins are forgiven. We repent, we return to him. All your sins, past, present, and future, are wiped clean. You are justified before God. You are declared righteous. You are his child. You will spend eternity with him. And yet, part of the evidence of that actually happening in your life is that you'll act on Jesus' words. You'll act on Jesus' words. You'll not perfect them, but you will put them into practice. See, see the, what, what we do with the Sermon on the Mound shows what we're really doing with Jesus. Because if we don't act on Jesus' words, are we really trusting him? 
And if we don't trust him, do we really know him? Do we really know him? What we do with the Sermon on the Mount, whether we put it into practice or not, reflects our trust in Jesus Christ. So as you look at the Sermon on the Mount, and you, it's choppy, right? It's bold. It's going to call us to change. We're going to have to look at the things in our heart and go, where am I angry against my brother or sister? Where am I lusting in my heart and I shouldn't be? Where am I greedy? Where, where am I hiding the truth and not telling the truth? Where could I walk the second mile with someone I don't like? How could I love my enemies? Where could I find a place to be humbly generous rather than flashy and giving to be getting attention publicly? Uh, how could I fast from a true place to know God better, not just to get something from him or someone else? How can I serve God from the heart rather than doing spiritual acts to serve other people? How, how can I trust God in a way that I won't worry? How can I let him in in a way that he actually deals with the deep hypocrisy in my own life? There's the Sermon on the Mount, and it's choppy. What do you do with it? Do you give it a hard pass? Do you look for other options? Maybe I can just stare at all this stuff and not actually put it into practice. Maybe I've come in my journey and I'm exploring Christianity, but I get here and I go, that's enough, I'm going to go find another path. What we do with the Sermon on the Mount shows our trust in Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. In the kingdom of God, what looks like death is actually a path to life. In the kingdom of God, what looks like danger is actually safety. In the kingdom of God, what looks like foolishness to the world is actually the wisest thing you can do. Jesus ends this part in verse 25 through 27 and says, The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Friends, the kingdom of God is upside down. What seems like life to our culture actually brings destruction. What seems like it's safe is actually quite dangerous. What seems like the wisdom of the world is actually foolishness before God. Because just like the kingdom of God is upside down, so our king, in a sense, is upside down. You see, his ultimate victory came through his death. When he was buried in the tomb and it seemed like everything was over, his greatest moment was about to happen. And for you and I, the call is to build your life on Jesus. Because when you build your life on Jesus, you might get showered by your own weaknesses and sins, but you have built yourself on the rock and are forgiven forever. When the waters of God's judgment come at Christ's return, you will not collapse because Jesus has got you. The judgment of God was poured out on Jesus for you on the cross. And when, when the winds of life pound on you, 
You will stand strong, not because you're strong, but because you're standing on the rock. And so the question is, even though the Sermon on the Mount looks choppy, will you go forward? Will you trust him? Will you put it into practice? Not perfection, but put it into practice. This morning, I was on a walk, and I just felt this conviction from one part of the Sermon on the Mount. I thought, I failed the last few days in this area on the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, I was talking with Cody, and I was like talking about another area of the Sermon on the Mount, and I thought, man, I'm failing in that area of the Sermon on the Mount. But because I'm standing on the rock, I can get right back up and try again with the love of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.